Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue to discover the story of the Bible in our current series with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue looking at Acts chapter 15 to Jude, as Dr. Newfeld shares a message entitled, Rebuilding David's Fallen Tent and the Test of Mankind. How did the storyline of the Bible become a global movement? Why has the Bible transformed more lives and changed whole civilizations and more profoundly impacted the human race than any other document? I mean, that's a question we love to ask here at Back to the Bible. We have dedicated our entire ministry to understanding and teaching the Bible in such a way that ordinary everyday moms and high school students and men and women working in factories and retirees can all understand it and find their lives and the way they see the world profoundly changed. See, for that reason, I have decided to try to tell the entire story of the Bible in just two weeks. And so I began by attempting to write what you might find on the back cover or in the inside jacket of a book where you get a a one paragraph intended to explain what the book is all about and, and to try to whet your appetite. See, the Bible, as I would write this introduction, tells the story of an inexpressibly glorious God and his creation. The crown of God's creation is man, expressed as male and female. God created man to rule and reign over his creation on his behalf. Man rebelled against God and fell from God, sinking man into alienation and death. But God will never abandon his creation. From the very beginning, God was in Christ, or in and through his chosen Messiah King, reconciling the world to himself. This plan of reconciliation reaches its zenith in the story of the cross, through which God makes his appeal to the human race. Come and be reconciled to God. And through the cross, God has built a worldwide movement of men and women who have embraced God's purpose and his design in their lives. At the Council of Jerusalem, found in Acts 15, The apostles and leading elders from the church in Jerusalem met to consider what to do with this exploding phenomenon called the Jesus Movement. Men and women from Gentile backgrounds were finding their way to confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and becoming full-fledged, baptized disciples of Jesus, the long-expected Jewish Messiah. You know, during this time, James, the physical brother of Jesus and what we today might call the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, stood up to read the prophecy from Amos 9, verses 11 to 12. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. See, this was a very important Old Testament text. Amos, inspired by the Holy Spirit, foresaw the day when the house of David would be torn down. Isaiah saw that as well when he spoke of the, of the stump of Jesse. It was an image of uh, the tree of the house of David, and it would be chopped down. Even though God had promised that the kingship of David would go on and on forever, the prophet saw that for a while it would look like that promise of God had come to nothing. But, said Amos, God will rebuild the ruin of David's destroyed kingdom, and in the day that he does, a remnant not only from Israel, but from the entire human race will be gathered into his kingdom. See, what's fascinating to me is to see the parallel between the destruction of David's kingdom 
and the destruction of David's descendant, Jesus, as he's nailed to the cross. The tent has fallen. And yet that which looks like the greatest of all defeats ends up being the mightiest of all victories as David's greater son testified that even death could not hold him. But let's get back to the Council of Jerusalem and this amazing phenomenon of Gentiles becoming followers of Jesus. James saw how in this the prophecy of Amos was being fulfilled. David's kingdom was being established through Jesus and the Gentiles were bending the knee to the mightiest of all kings. The restoration of David's tent was accompanied by a significant turning to God of people from all races. You know, armed with the prophecies from the Old Testament and the endorsement of the leadership of the church, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Syria to tell that mostly Gentile church that God had accepted them. They were welcome in his kingdom. And the Apostle Paul was to set the groundwork for this amazing development or this wonderful twist in the Bible's plot line. Having been sent out by the church in Antioch, he set out on three planned and one unplanned missionary journey. The first journey presented in Acts 13 to 14 is the journey that sparked the Council of Jerusalem and took them through the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea and then also into southern Turkey. You know, it's very likely that he penned the book of Galatians just after that, uh, perhaps even just after the Council of Jerusalem. So when we read Galatians, we, we encounter the heart of the revolution that was then just underway. In Galatians 2.15, Paul would write, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now there Paul would explain in chapter 3 verse 7 that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See, the promise given to Abraham had never been inherited by his natural descendants, but only by those who believed. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul would write, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then Paul explained the law of Moses. It was added to the promise given to Abraham because of transgression, meaning because of human sin. The law highlighted what it was like to be fallen, and it identified individual sins and made it altogether necessary to come to God and to plead for mercy. And that's why Paul would add in chapter 3, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It identified our inability to obtain the promise of Abraham until something should be done with the sin problem. But now that Christ had come, the entire storyline of the Old Testament is now made plain. Jesus is the doorway to inheriting the promise of Abraham, a doorway that includes access by both Jews and Gentiles. And then after the Council of Jerusalem, well, things become increasingly clear. Paul and his missionary team must be sent out again. And the second missionary journey is recorded in Acts 15, verse 36, all the way to chapter 18, verse 22. And this time, Paul's travels and his establishing of Gentile churches take him as far afield as Europe, into that which is now the nation of Greece. It was during this time that he wrote the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. A third missionary journey is organized, and again, Paul travels through Turkey into Greece, but this time ranging as far south on the Greek peninsula as the city of Athens. 
During this time, he writes the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and also the book of Romans. The book of Romans is of particular interest because Paul writes to a church that had already begun, far beyond where his travels had taken him. Clearly, Paul's missionary team is not the only one at work. Romans is directed to the Roman church, which Paul had never visited, and it is generally believed that the book contains the basics of the gospel that Paul would have preached in every city where he visited. What is also fascinating to the Bible reader is to get a sense of two items that seem to be passionately at work in Paul. The first is an offering he was undertaking among Gentile believers to care for the physical needs of the impoverished church in Jerusalem. Listen to what he writes in Romans 15, verses 26 to 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So clearly, for Paul, the cord could never be cut between Jews and Gentiles. For him, Gentile believers would always owe to Israel an infinite debt, one it could never repay. Everything we have in Christ comes from the root of how God was reconciling the world to himself in the account of Abraham until the coming of Christ. And even as Paul never lost his passion for Israel, he recognized that his calling was to the Gentiles. And so after having spoken to the Roman Christians about his offering for the church in Jerusalem, he then adds, and I'm reading from the very next verse in Romans, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Why was that? Well, a few verses earlier in verse 20, he had explained that. I make it my ambition, he said, to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundations. He was, after all, always the missionary to the Gentiles. Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Do you want to know the answers to some of the most commonly asked questions from our listeners? Well, this month, I'll be privileged to host a special Back to the Bible Canada Q&A video series with Dr. John Newfeld, where he'll respond to some of the most timely and critical questions of faith and life. You can watch this series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a new Back to the Bible Canada video program, remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel while you're there. One of our viewers wrote to say, I just subscribed. Thank you for sharing God's word. The greatest calling in life is to present the truth of his word. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Somewhere around the time when Paul was writing the letter to the Romans and completing his third missionary journey, we get a clear sense that he was not the only person concerned with the welfare of Gentile believers. John Mark, the disciple and helper of the Apostle Peter, was writing out a story of Jesus so that Christians in Rome would have a written copy of the event of Jesus. 
I've made mention before of my personal theory that the apostles all had a set of notes, and in my opinion, they were most likely put together by Matthew. The book of Mark then becomes the first written account of the life of Jesus, and interestingly enough, it was written for a Gentile Roman audience. I had also made mention of the fact that Paul had four missionary journeys, the last one unplanned. Indeed, Acts 21 and following records that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem with a gift for the impoverished Jewish believers, Paul himself was a well-known public figure. His arrival in Jerusalem resulted in riots and anger over his Gentile mission. He was arrested and held for two years in Caesarea, the Roman garrison that was in Israel. And from there, he appeals to Caesar, for Paul is not only Jewish, he also holds Roman citizenship. He is then sent to Rome, where he is held in prison awaiting a trial. Now, while in prison, he writes four of his books, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. The book of Philippians is of great interest because there Paul describes how his imprisonment has resulted in being guarded daily by a member of the Praetorium, which was a part of the elite Roman guards also charged with guarding the safety of the emperor himself. In consequence of this situation, the entire household of Caesar was now heard the gospel and it was becoming the focus of conversation. The book of Ephesians is fascinating because it contains a further explanation of what God has done in the mission to the Gentiles. Let's listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3 verses 4 to 6. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Indeed, in the previous chapter, Paul had made an astonishing statement. Ephesians 2.15 says that Christ has created one man out of the two. The two are the Jew and the Gentile. The new man is a new race of people made up of both Jews and Gentiles, those who inherit the promises from the foundation of creation. What was happening right now, Paul says, is that through Jesus, God was putting together a people who would complete that which, which Adam had refused. Listen to Paul describe this in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And there it is. The gospel of Jesus was filling the earth with the glory of God and creating a people who would take their place, acknowledging their rightful king and ruling with him in fulfillment of the plan of God from creation onwards. Now, there's so much more to tell of the story of the New Testament. It would appear after the imprisonment of Rome that that Paul seems to have been released. Now, we have no historical record of his activities, but it does seem likely that he would have completed his dream and brought the gospel of Jesus to Spain. 
You know, sometime later, and we know none of the specifics, he seems to have been arrested again, whereupon he writes the last three letters. And the first is 1 Timothy. Paul has sent his lieutenant Timothy to Ephesus because false teaching has begun among the leadership in that church. Timothy is called upon to bring order to a church that is losing her sense of direction. You know, the book's fascinating because it gives us keen insights into how the New Testament churches were to order their affairs. Next, Paul writes Titus, and Titus, being another of Paul's lieutenants, is also called upon to bring order to the Christian church on the island of Crete. Last, when Paul is again in prison, he writes one more letter to Timothy. Second Timothy is a kind of a farewell address. Now, tradition has it that both Paul and the apostle Peter were both executed in Rome. But of course, their deaths does not end the lordship of Jesus Christ or of his creating a people for himself. Sometime around the first imprisonment of Paul, Luke, another one of Paul's companions, was himself busy writing another one of the Gospels. Even though the book is addressed to a specific man, someone named Theophilus, we know that the book is intended for a much wider audience, probably an audience of Gentiles who would have been familiar with Jewish customs. The story of Jesus is being written so that it will not be forgotten after the apostles die. Again, I'm assuming that Matthew's notes form the basis. Then, of course, sometime during this time, Matthew himself pens his own gospel. It was written sometime in the 60s, and for the first time, someone is writing a gospel with a particularly Jewish audience in mind. That's why we see so many references to the Old Testament and connecting the account of Jesus with the entire scope of the Old Testament in the gospel of Matthew. Now, Peter is also writing First and Second Peter as well. Sometime in the 60s, the book of Hebrews takes shape, a book that does something no other book does. See, many Bible scholars believe that the book of Hebrews is a sermon and that it was delivered to Jewish Christians because of the onset of Roman persecution against Christians. Jewish Christians were being tempted to abandon their faith in Jesus and were tempted to go back to Judaism because Jews were protected at that time and, and Christians were not. Hebrews, more than any other book, pours over the Old Testament law, particularly drawing attention to the practice of the sacrifice of animals. From that God-ordained practice, the writer of Hebrews shows how the death of Christ on a cross is the final sacrifice, the very thing that all Old Testament sacrifices have been leading up to. That's why no Jewish Christian could ever go back to simply the Old Testament. But we can't end our study of the New Testament letters without noticing that before the death of the apostles, two major issues confront the infant church. One issue was false teaching. And the other issue was the onset of persecution, both from Roman and Jewish communities. I've not yet mentioned the book of James, probably written quite early, sometime in the late 40s, when, when the first books of the New Testament were being penned. James is concerned that the truth that faith in Christ alone saves should not lead the new believer to live without works or a lifestyle in keeping with the commands of God. And then at the end of the New Testament are the letters of Jude and the three letters of John. A quick survey of the letters reveals the threat of false teaching. Jude, the physical brother of Jesus, writes about false teachers who have secretly slipped in among us, he writes. They scorn authority and they permit sexual immorality. 
And then there are the three letters of John written in the late 80s and the early 90s. And again, false teaching is an issue. Some false teachers denied that Jesus was the Christ. Some denied that he actually came in the flesh. And some would have argued that it only appeared that he came in the flesh. It was only an illusion. Some denied that his death was necessary to forgive sins. And and John writes to correct all of that. And so we can see that if God was raising up his church at the end of the age as the fulfillment of the entire storyline of the Bible, in a way, the entire storyline goes back to the very beginning. It was in the garden that God had told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then along came Satan, and he confronts the woman with a question, did God really say? And here, as the apostolic era is coming to a close, that same question is being heard again. Did God really say, are we to actually believe the writings of the apostles? And the Gospel of John is the last of the four Gospels, probably written in the early 90s. It's the most theological of all the accounts of the life of Jesus. John assumes that his readers are quite familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John wants to add something. He wants an evangelistic tract of the life of Jesus, and he wants to be assured that all the false teaching about Jesus must now be stopped. And before the New Testament closes, only one issue needs to be addressed. If Jesus is the king, when does he bring an end to evil? More on the last broadcast. John, that was a whole lot of territory to cover there. But if you were to sort of capsulize the significance of the epistles, what would it be? You know, that's such a good question. And and that's why I struggled to make sure that I kind of got together the entire message of the epistles. I think the epistles tell us why it is that Christ died. So that's very significant. The epistles tell us why it is that The gospel that we are justified by faith and by faith alone makes it necessary for us to reach out to people outside of our people group. I mean, if the Jews could do it, my heavens, with all of the Old Testament behind them, if they could find a way to reach out to the the Gentiles, why, I think that we can reach out to those who have never heard of Christ as well. So I think we ought to read the epistles with an understanding of outreach in mind as well. Well, we have a great challenge there. Now that Christ has come, the entire storyline of the Old Testament is now made plain. And now God's plan to reach the corners of the earth with this great story of redemption begins and would continue to fill the earth with his glory. We look forward to the great story continuing right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh-Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. 
to request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.